1 John chapter 2, starting in verse 7. Beloved, I am writing to you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you have had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I'm writing to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness, walks in the darkness, and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong. And the word of God abides in you. And you have overcome the evil one. Let's pray. Oh God, you've already worked a miracle to give life to our dead hearts. (laughs) May you now give life to a dying voice. That the words of God would go forward, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. One of the great joys of my childhood... One of those great memories I have stored in the back of my mind. Watching television with my father and my younger sister, mainly my dad. I remember him laughing so hard. But growing up watching The Muppet Show, right? And not The Muppet Babies, good show also, but the actual proper Muppet Show. Uh, I can't remember how old I was. It has to be Boston's age where I realized that I desperately wanted to grow up to be Waldorf, the old guy sitting in the... uh, You laugh because you know it's true, and I'm 38. I would do the voice to make the joke, but I guess I already sound like that, so it really isn't quite as funny. It was a great show because you got to watch all of the different personalities and the characters of the Muppets themselves, these tremendous puppets that would come to life on the screen. And Jim Henson, with his tremendous amount of connections in the Hollywood world, would bring in the best of talent so that you got to watch the best of dancing, the tap dancing and the, all of the shows. You got to see the best of music and the best of comedy, and it was all across the spectrum. It was a, a genuinely great variety show. So much so that we've actually bought them now and watch them periodically with the children. I love it. It's, it's such good fun. But my, I think my favorite part out of all of it, though, is watching the interviews with the actors and actresses that are brought in. Because you may not know how the set was arranged, but the set was arranged so that the actors and actresses had a small plank that they had to walk on with a giant pit in front of them. 
And the pit in front of them was where the actors for the Muppets would stand. And every Muppet had been constructed by a team of interns and employees, every part of them except for one part, the eyes. Only one person in the history of the Muppets until he died placed the eyes. Jim Henson put every set in because he believed it was the eyes that made the Muppets come to life. It was the eyes that made them seem like they were fresher and moving and alive and more than just cardboard and cotton. And the amazing thing is, as you watch the interviews with the actors, while they're having to perform on a very narrow sort of like plank that they're walking between with people standing in front of them well inside their personal space and people standing them behind them well inside their personal space. Just go for a moment. Think about when, you know, they pop up overside the actor's shoulder. Where's the face connected to those hands? I'm just saying. Took you a second, didn't it? <clears throat> but it's interesting, every interview with the actors is fantastic because at some point in the interview, they all say the same thing. I forgot they weren't alive. As part of what made the show so good is that the Muppets, the characters, were so animated and so engaging and so kind of real in their personalities that even the actors and the actresses forgot they were talking to Muppets. There's one beside behind-the-scenes interview where the actor is talking with the puppeteer, and they've got the puppet on his hands, and the actor keeps trying to address the face of the puppet down there. You could talk to the man that's moving the mouth, brother. You don't have to talk to the Muppet down at the bottom. It's intriguing. They, they're just gripped. And you're like, it's a ridiculous puppet. How could you forget it's dead? But they all begin to have the line blurred through the process. The amazing thing is that the same thing happens in the church all the time. Where the line is blurred, not between humans and puppets, but between those that are alive and those that are dead. You see, in a room like this inside any church, doesn't matter if it's American or Canadian or African, none of it matters. You have a gathering of people and all people fall into one of two categories. They are either alive people or they are dead people. And I don't just mean physically. Physical death is the easy, visible reminder of the spiritual reality. And so in a room like this, as we gather together, we have those that are alive. And unfortunately, probably some that are dead. And much like the Muppets, we forget to pay attention to that fact. We forget to be aware that not everyone is the same. We forget Sometimes it gets us in trouble. You see, John is writing later in life. This is a book that's late in the spectrum of the development of the New Testament. 
And at this point, persecution has already set in severely. And even as Thomas prayed for persecution to be uh, removed from our brothers and sisters in other parts of the world, one great effect that it had was to function as a, a winnowing fork, a divider between those that are actual Christians and those that are not. And the early church was wrestling with it. They were struggling with what do we do as the gospel is going forward, people are, are being converted, people are being changed. Some are just coming in for the financial assistance. Some are real, some are, what, what do we do? And at this point in the book, John has been crafting some <clears throat> mechanisms for them to use. I mean, it would be very similar talking to the actors and saying, I'm just going to give you a little hint. If they have giant googly eyes, it's probably a Muppet. It's probably. I mean, some of the actors and actors, maybe not, but it's a good start. If they have green furry skin, again, it's a good start that it's not a human, I hope. John here has done the same thing in chapter 2. As he's begun, he said, look, here's our first good start. You want to know what a person who is spiritually alive looks like. It's a person who obeys the commandments of Christ. (coughs) They're holy. Their lives are marked by a newness of life. Their lives are marked by regeneration. Their lives are marked by a new nature. And that new nature leaks out. And you can't not see it. I used the illustration last week of glitter. You can get glitter anywhere. And once you get glitter anywhere, you get glitter everywhere. It's the nature of glitter to be contagious. It's the nature of glitter to be expansive and spreading and gross. It's the nature of sanctification. It's the nature of God's people that when they are regenerated, that holiness will leak out of them. It can't be contained in it. It has to spill over. So now we come to verses 7 through 14, and he's just laid out, hey, one thing we look at is a good way to determine if a person, and again, it's not perfect, But the best way to tell is to look, do they have holiness leaking out of them? Well, now, glitter element number two. In fact, actually, maybe not glitter for those that are a little bit older, I guess, like if you ever had one of your old ballpoint pens leak in your shirt, where did the ink end up? Everywhere is the correct answer. So glitter for the first one, now ink. This spreadable, contagious ink here being laid out. Our second mechanism for determining what Christians look like. How will we know? Well, we will be able to look at them, and they will be creatures that love one another. It's almost like an irrepressible aspect of their nature. You can't keep it down. 
It will bubble up to the surface. It will come up to the top. It will spill over. They will love each other. And we're going to look at kind of three parts to this, uh, three elements to his argument uh, that he's making. We are to love, uh, first kind of theme here, we are to love one another because of the kingdom of God. Beloved, again, old Grandpa John here, last of the ones alive, writing to the church, I'm writing to you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. That commandment is that you are to love one another. And we've known we've had that from the beginning. It's been all throughout the Old Testament and thus far all throughout the New Testament. It's part of the fiber of God's world that if you are to be his person, you are to love one another. But in the Old Testament, that had a very narrow framing to it. You were to love one another, but specifically that had been narrowly framed in cultural and nationalistic terms. You were to love Israel And you were to love not Israel only if they became Israel. You love the sojourner in your midst. You love the slave. You love those that traveled among you, but they played by your rules, Israel. It's also why we see commands like uh, exterminate the wicked when you go into the land. We struggle with, well, that doesn't seem very loving. It was because God's love had been chosen to be expressed to one people group, to one nation state, to Israel. It was the people of God were connected to a nation. And they all understood that they were to love the people of that nation. And so John says, beloved, look, I'm, not, I'm writing to you an old, an old commandment. Everybody, all Jews would have known that you are supposed to love your neighbor. But they would have immediately defined that as, I am to love my Jewish neighbor. Of course I would love my Jewish neighbor. Well, problem is at this point in 90 or so, 95, when this is being written, oh no, we don't have Jewish neighbors anymore. Persecution has hit Jerusalem, and as roaches when the lights cut on, the Christians have scattered to the ends of the earth. They think they've already evangelized the far side of India by this point. There's a stream of modern academics that's trying to argue that Christianity had actually made it to all the way through China uh, by the end of 200 or so. It's already made it all the way to Spain, up and into England. It's crazy how far Christians have gone. The old commandment is the word that you have indeed actually heard. Not making a new one. At the same time. At the same time, though, it is actually a new commandment that I'm writing to you, which is true in him. And it's true in you. And why is it true? Why is this commandment to love each other a new commandment? Well, it's being expanded and it's being increased. The nationalistic boundaries of Israel are being pried away. And God's people are being spread throughout the world. 
This, this reality <clears throat> is changing because the darkness is already passing away and the true light is already shining. And I, I love that he says this in the, the, the tense that he says it in. Because one of the things that we're watching right now in our, our current culture, our current country, is that many in our country, and particularly those that are much older, or weirdly enough, those that are much younger, everybody in the middle is kind of not in this camp, but those that are much older, those that are much younger, are looking at our nation and saying, it's changing at the rapidest pace we've ever seen, and it's all changing for the worst. And oh no, look around, death and destruction, woe is me, uh, the great plague on the U.S., ah, and it's the end of the earth, which by the way is not true. <clears throat> But it is very much similar to how the church would have felt at this point. Persecution is, is the greatest we've ever seen. Christians are running for their lives. The, the young man, the, John's intern, Apostle John's version of Robert, intern Robert or ex-intern Jeremiah, sorry fellas, is killed by lions in the Roman arena. Sorry about that. Sorry about that. He's murdered. He's, he's shredded. They were very hungry that day. And the church is having to ask, oh no, what do we do? And it's interesting, John says, look, even in the midst of a culture that looks worse than it's ever seemed, the identity of Christians will be people who love. Why? Because the kingdom of God is already victorious it's a new commandment it's expanded it's increased because the darkness is already passing away Uh, this had to have been a staggering statement in the early church they would I mean John you do know they're feeding us to the lions right I mean you do know Polycarp's going to die in just a handful of years. You do know, like, we're all perishing for the faith. The darkness is already passing away. The true light is already shining. Why? How can he put this in the tense that it's taking place? Well, it's because Jesus has already accomplished victory. And because Christ is already victorious he's already displayed his love he's already accomplished salvation it doesn't really matter what's happening in the world around because all of that is fading away and the kingdom of God is growing it's interesting all of the parables that Jesus tells about the kingdom of God specifically all highlight one key element well two key elements it grows And it wins. A tiny little seed that grows up into a massive tree. It grows. It wins. It's victorious. God's church will increase and will expand. It grows. And it already has won. So because of that, you can look around and say, even in the darkest of times, God's love will leach through his people because he's already victorious through them. It's just a matter of time until the rest of the world figures it out. 
He's already one. But he doesn't stop there. Recognizing Christ's victory already. He then turns to kind of further argumentation, further encouragement to believe what he's already said. Whoever says he's in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Hatred is a byproduct of a fallen soul. Hatred is the evil that is contaminating and flowing out of a filthy heart. Jesus uses the trees as the illustration. A bad tree produces bad fruit. A bad tree produces hatred. Now, sometimes certainly Christians hate, but it's that product of their lingering corruption. Verse 10, whoever loves his brother abides, remains, and lives in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. This holiness that God gives to his people is displayed in love because, here's our second kind of theme, true faith is displayed in love. True faith is displayed in love in two aspects, really. Love of God and love of neighbor. And I guess thirdly, if we wanted to add in, in kind of our postmodern context, an appropriate and righteous love of self. Not having those in the incorrect order. But because God is love, when he comes and resides in his people, love will be that thing that flows out of them. That's why when our guys start candidating for churches, that's one of those things they have to sniff out in the churches they look at to whether they pastor. Are they loving? I mean, honestly, if they're discouraged, you can preach against discouragement. You can preach encouragement. So first thing I preached, year and a half, same sermon, over and over, different passages. Fight against discouragement, Jesus wins. But if there's no love, well, you got to worry then. Because then you, you have to worry that you're actually dealing with a church that's not actually a church. When these guys go to candidate for churches and we, we start finding them jobs and finding places, you know what? If, if, if the church doesn't have a prayer meeting and the church doesn't love each other, boy, you really have to wonder. You really have to worry. Because love is that byproduct, is the way our faith is displayed. It's the way we showcase it. And honestly, some of us are very uncreative in, in the way that we think of giving gifts. You think about it, for some of us in the room, uh, holidays, birthdays, Mother's Day, Christmas is tremendously anxiety-inducing. Not just because it means that we spend time with larger family, which... Fair enough, for some of you, that is good cause for anxiety. 
But more is we just we lack such creativity that when it's time for us to figure out how to give a gift that shows our love, we're like, well, I don't know. I mean, what do we do? I don't know. And here God is saying, look, my people, their faith, it, it will be displayed. The arena in which it will be shown forth, the, the medium that the artistry will be proven is in love of one another. And that love will not be confined only to Jews. That love will cross boundary lines of race, boundary lines of language, boundary lines of time, boundary lines of culture. It it will cross every boundary line because God's love is for his people. It spreads. It's contagious. And if we're honestly kind of thinking through this, sorry, this is going to be a short sermon today because I'm running low on voice. If we're honestly thinking about this, I mean, if we're emotionally engaging the sermon, if you're, you're actually genuinely wrestling through what I'm saying, you would think, well, okay, I, I've got the idea that Jesus has already come. I've got that. I, I'm, that's why I'm here, right? That's why I came to church today. Jesus is true. Good. And you would say, I've got the idea that God's people are to be loved. But if we're going to be honest, we would then have to kind of immediately say, But you know what? Sometimes there are people I don't want to love. Or we would say there are times where I'm too tired to love. Or we would say I want to strangle them (laughs) with wet spaghetti. They're driving me crazy. Because we're, we're human and we're, we're frail. We're such fragile creatures. Again, I, the throat irritates me beyond all belief. Had a voice yesterday, wake up today, no voice. No warning, no way to know. I hate it. But you know what? It's a really good reminder of that human frailty, isn't it? I mean, our worship today is severely impacted by snot. I mean, how weak is that? But it's interesting how John, he understands human frailty and he understands, look, if if we are to be creatures of love, our love will wear thin. I mean, I talk with you on the phone. I know some of you are in situations right now where your love is wearing very thin for someone. Really thin. You weren't supposed to laugh out loud. So what does John do? The Holy Spirit gives indicatives. He gives promises. He gives truths that our minds are to be anchored in for when our emotions lie. When our bodies tell us we're too tired. When our hearts tell us it's not worth it. When our irritation and temper shows up and you want to just strangle them. We go back to the promises of God. And in fact, John does it in such a way, most of your your English Bibles are going to have this offset in poetry formula because he switches gears so that the, the reading audience, this would catch them like cold water in the face. 
or if they were kind of maybe starting to nod off on a warm Sunday sermon, that the air horn would go off. <laughs> I'm writing to you, little children, church, whole corporate church, because your sins are already forgiven. If you want to love, you have to have as a foundational understanding of who you are and who the people of God are, that their sins are already forgiven. Because honestly, you know what kills forgiveness and kills love faster than anything else? Bitterness. Or when you want to hold their sins over them longer than God has. If we are the people of God and we have forgiven sin, I mean, I'm sorry, if we have confessed our sin, as he has already told us, God is faithful and just to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we are to love one another, it has to be foundational in our minds that, look, I'm forgiven. How on earth could I not be forgiving towards others? And that the people of God are forgiven. And if they hurt my feelings for the 48,000th time, they have the love of Christ on them. And I can still forgive them. I can still love them. I can still pour affection and gentleness and kindness and Christian charity on them. Not because they deserve it, because absolutely neither of us deserve it. I'm writing to you, fathers. Because you know him who is from the beginning. Because true love is about God. You see, this is the part that our culture currently misses, is to say that love is some sort of chemical process, or some sort of feeling, or some sort of affection, some sort of desire or delight or joy, and it's missing it on all counts. True Christian love is a holy commitment to act for the best of the other. It's why God, who is perfect love, is the perfect disciplinarian for his children. We're looking at generations, my generation and younger, that have been raised with the self-esteem movement. And we've been taught that love is this positive feeling. And so we can't discipline our children because we can't live with the idea of them being mad at us or being sad at us or that we might hurt their feelings. And it's like, God is love and he disciplines us all the time. Because love is a commitment to the best of the other even if it hurts their feelings, even if it makes them a little bit angry. It's a commitment to their best. It's about God. I'm writing to you young men, and I love this, because you have overcome the evil one. I love this because out of all the groups in a church, that you would say already have overcome the evil one. I'm just going to go out on a limb and say, if we took a poll, young men would be the last. I'm just going to go out on a limb. Right? Middle school boys. 
Y'all have already overcome the evil one. Why? Because Jesus is victorious, and if you know the Lord Christ, you're victorious too. You can love with abandon. You can love with joy. You can love with gentleness. You can love with delight, even when other people are irritating, because you already have victory over the devil. You don't have to wait until you die. And sometimes your feelings lie to you about this one. He starts over and reiterates the same things. I write to you, children, church, because you already know God. I write to you, fathers, because you already know him who's from the beginning. And then again to the young men. I write to you because you are strong. And we would say, yes, absolutely, young men are strong. But he doesn't mean physically. He means spiritually. And the word of God abides in you, and you have already overcome the evil one. I love his thought process in this section. God's people will be marked by love because faith shows itself in love and the only fuel that can drive that love is the work of Christ. It's the the promises of God. It's the reality that Jesus has already won. And I would say that for us, this is important. In fact, I would go so far as to say imperative that we think about it. I recognize that as we continue to grow as a church of this size, we will continue to add more and more people. And you know what? Sometimes we're going to have people come in our midst that are actually Muppets. And I don't mean that in the silly, funny sense. I mean that we need to be on the lookout. Because as we add more bodies, we increase the odds that we have believers and unbelievers in our midst. And it is okay to be aware of that fact. It's also extremely important that we as God's people in this place seek to cultivate the love that we have for one another and the love for God that we seek to display. You realize that's part of why the session for well before I got here, I think the entire history of this church has made sure that flocks was a continually happening event. Is it's the opportunity to know and display the love of God to the fullness of the body. It's one of the things that we pray is that this body will be friends with each other. So that when people step in through the doors, people will go, man, this is a really, this is a weird group of people. There's something different happening here. That the love of God will be overflowing. It would be easy to see. I mean, I know some of you probably have met a grandma that was this way. I'm not saying you are. But the one who maybe wears a couple of squirts too much of perfume And so well before you see her, you smell her. (laughs) 
May it be that the perfume of this body is the love that we have. So that well before we even see what's happening in the church, the love of Christ is on display. But the reality is, if you try that in your own strength, you will grow weary. You will grow weary of doing good. You'll grow weary of people taking advantage of you. You'll grow weary of their sour attitudes. You'll grow weary of when people let you down, either on purpose or by accident. You will grow weary with the human frailty that we all share. And honestly, the only thing that will continue to have this church grow the way that we desire it to be, the thing that will be the lubrication in the engine, so to speak, will be a trust in God's promises. That already we are forgiven as God's people for his name's sake. And you know what? That person that let you down, if they are in Christ, they're forgiven too. And you should forgive them. To know that we are creatures of love because God is love. To cling to the promises of God. I would encourage you, humbly, as your pastor, I would, I would plead with you. Please fix your minds and your hearts to dwell on God's promises. And when you start thinking about others, think about them in light of God's promises. I know that maybe sounds a little weird at first. I promise you're going to have so much more fun. And we're already having a ton of fun. I mean, I don't know about you, but I'm having a ton of fun in the church here. But may it be that we dwell on God's promises and increase and good deeds, and tenderness, and affection for our Savior, and for one another. Let's pray. Father, we honor you. You alone are the author of salvation. Lord, because you have already accomplished salvation, may you fill us and feed us with Christ, and may we love one another for Christ's sake. Amen. Amen.